0: Welcome, my name is Thomas Copeland and this is The Scoop on Sunday. On tonight's show, Queen's University is transitioning back to in-person teaching from Monday the 31st of January. This comes after the university mandated that most of January's teachings would be conducted online. That decision, coming just days before Christmas, attracted a significant amount of criticism from students. So, as learning moves back to in-person, we'll be looking at what Covid interventions are still in place. Now, draft proposals put to the Northern Ireland Economy Committee this month would see a reduction in university places here, as well as an increase in tuition fees of nearly 60%. That comes as the Department of Economy tries to find ways to make up for a reduction in its budget of over £250 million. We'll be looking at what impact those proposed cuts would have on young people here. In December, Queen's University released its 2021 annual report, which revealed an operational surplus, that's a profit in layman's terms, of almost £25 million. We'll be digging into those financial statements on tonight's show and looking to find out how COVID-19 has affected the university's finances. Also on the show, six universities across the UK have signed a pledge to stop using non-disclosure agreements with their staff and with their students. This comes after a BBC News investigation in 2020 found that nearly a third of UK universities had used NDAs to silence student complaints about sexual misconduct, bullying and harassment. We'll be covering that story with a student journalist from one of the universities who signed up to the government-backed pledge. Plus, we've got a new Scoop show launching this month. Stick with us to find out more about the show, what it's all about and how you can get involved. It's all here tonight on The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company. Okay, well, why don't we start off close to home. In an email to students this week, Queen's University has announced it's moving back to in-person teaching from the 31st of January. The Scoop has repeatedly requested an interview with university leadership to understand how and why the university made the decision to move online back in December and why they're now transitioning back to in-person. No one from the uni was available to speak to us this week live or pre-recorded. Make of that what you will. Instead, let's talk now to Emma Murphy, the SU Education Officer. Okay, well, with me now is Emma Murphy, SU Education Officer. Emma, thanks so much for being with me. Before we talk about the move back to in-person teaching coming at the end of this month, let's go back in time a little bit to the end of December, when the university informed students that January would be taught online. What was your initial reaction to that at the time?
1: I think that as a student's union, that students really had a reaction in this. I think that it was quite clear that a lot of students were angry and didn't feel very consulted in this decision. Um, I think that just from online reaction, the fact that students really found out about this decision from news outlets before it was delivered to their email, it, it just kind of it, it felt to them that this was something that they weren't consulted in, they they just didn't understand the reasoning behind it in a lot of cases as well. Mm. Um, and I think as a Students' Union, we were just kind of not not consulted in those meetings beforehand either, we kind of found it at the same time that students did as well.
0: Okay, well, that was gonna be my next question. What was the nature of the consultation with the Students' Union? Did you know before the email went out to students or before the reports appeared in the BBC? And if so, you know, what was the nature of that consultation?
1: I think that it was one of those um, decisions that were alerted a wee bit before students were. So I believe the email went out around 5pm on on the Monday, the 21st in and around that kind of time zone. Um, And we did hear a, a, a few hours kind of days beforehand, but it was something that we imagined had had different reasons behind as well we we kind of felt that the university is probably following public health guidance advice advice on this um but i think that as as it became clear for january that it was going to be wider COVID cases as well that that seemed to be the reasoning behind it
0: so that's interesting so actually i mean in your head um because it's important to separate Being online in January and the way in which that was communicated to students, excuse me, the way in which that was communicated to students, uh, is your bigger problem with the way in which that was communicated to students, i.e. some limited consultation being informed largely through media outlets before Um, before being told directly via email? Or is your problem with the fact that the university was online in January at all?
2: Yeah, I think that it was
1: just the genuine way that it came about, the decision that the process that it was being made in, because it just really didn't give students or staff time to prepare. I think that the way that it was communicated right before staff were meant to leave to go on Christmas break, I think it really impacted them being able to plan their teaching for January I think for students as well, it it just really, it, it created a lot of confusion and worry that this was going to be the entire second semester. I think that the way that there was confusion about the wording as well, that they weren't sure whether this was going to be just for January or whether this was going to continue on. And um, I think that that really caused a lot of confusion at the time that students deserved to rest after examinations. They deserved time to just be with their family and not have to worry about how January was going to look at this on top of everything else as well.
0: Okay, um, just before we move on to some of the support measures that are now in place as the university moves back in person, it is worth saying that I have contacted on a number of occasions the comms office, the press office within the university, to ask for a member of university leadership to talk on this issue. Does it surprise you, Emma, that they have refused to do so?
1: Um, in a lot of ways it doesn't. I think that for them it it probably they feel that it's clear enough in the statements of how things are going Um, but i think that in general there does seem to be a bit of unwillingness to to communicate around these issues i think that i'm sure that from a student media's perspective it can't be very frustrating to to just not get that engagement and but as a student's union we find that communicating with students in a variety of forms is the most important thing for us and um, keeping everyone else informed as well and um, so that's that's why I'm really happy to come on this show and kind of like just just really specify how things are going as well
0: okay well let's talk about some of those specific interventions that are now taking place now that the university is largely back online uh, from the 31st of January. And I do want to touch upon some of those courses that have significant elements remaining of online learning. Let's talk through some of these first of all. So what are the rules currently in place with, the last two things in one go, Emma, with 48 hour extension, of flexible extension, how does that work? What does it apply to? And talk to us as well about exceptional circumstances and how that works with COVID ongoing.
1: Yeah, so both of these things, we were extremely happy that we lobbied for and kind of got from the university because I think that students always have a lot of added pressure around deadlines. Um, So the flexibility of the 48-hour extension, that's available for any continuous assessment or any coursework. Um, And that's kind of for the designated 48-hour period. So it goes by those hours instead of calendar days, the universities to kind of operate on that model. of, of using kind of working days but now it's kind of going back to calendar days and being very specific with that time
0: period as well. so if you have a uh, if you have an essay that's due uh i don't know 5 p.m on a friday your essay is now due or you have a flexible deadline to 5 p.m on the sunday not 5 p.m on the tuesday am i right
1: yeah um okay. so it's it's one of those cases as well where it's it's something that you don't have to apply for exceptional circumstances for, it's just kind of, it waives the late penalty, more or less. um, uh, And it's it's for those 48 hours. And the only kind of cases that it doesn't seem to be in place for is for those in-person or timed examinations that might be happening online as well.
0: And there's a final Um, thing on the 48 hour flexible extension, Emma, just because it's something that I've run into. It is likely that when you submit, is it you tell me that I mean uh, i think most students are working off canvas will still tell you that your essay is late so it will say late you know on the platform but what you're actually saying is that it's more about waiving uh, any of the penalties that would come with it being late rather than the deadline being moved do you understand what i mean
1: yeah no i had that experience last year as well where it did kind of say that it was late but in in the grand scheme things it didn't affect my marks at all it was just um, the way that the system works and the timing of the system has that specific deadline, so anything afterwards appears late, but won't have that late penalty. Okay, so
0: students it. shouldn't panic if they see late beside their work on Canvas. Let's talk about exceptional circumstances then.
1: Yeah. So this is something that is still in review, um, because it, it at the moment it does only apply till the thirty first of January. So if there's any coursework or exams that are happening and within January, this is like an important thing to note that it will change in February, but we are continuously fighting for this to be extended and but for self certification on exceptional circumstances, and that is kind of something that is given for illness kind of short term and. circumstances that may mean that you don't have the evidence to hand straight away so this is something that the university usually has only for five days and um, it's the maximum that you can apply for and um, but for january kind of in light of how testing seems to be very unavailable um, and just the general kind of way that gps are very overwhelmed at the moment as well and um, that has been extended to 14 days so it's something that we're very keen to see extended until February um, and possibly the rest of the semester but that is something under review.
0: Because of course as much as many of the restrictions are being removed across the UK and indeed in Ireland um, there's still an obligation and is still mandatory to isolate if you get COVID. um, Yeah. Track and trace Um, and all these things are are still in place. It's yeah it's something that
1: we were very aware of especially for in-person exams that were happening in January. Um, And it's something that students were really, really concerned about as well, because we did see quite an influx of students that had either tested positive or were very concerned that they would and wouldn't be able to sit those exams. And the part of that, part of the lobbying that we did on that as well was that any exams that weren't necessarily um, required by an outside body so kind of any accreditation body to be a qualified, say accountant or dentist, that those exams would be moved online. There was only one skill exception for that. Um, and the university gave their justification for it. And we weren't necessarily in agreement with that, but I think that that was something that we kind of were aware of, but that's also something that we acknowledge that the free reset um, for exams as well is very important
0: and that and that's if, continuing for all of this year. The free reset for exams, Emma.
1: Yeah, I think I believe until the thirty first of June, and um, and then, especially if there was an exam missed in January due to illness, that the reset attempt it's it's basically your first sit, so that's uncapped and and is completely, um uh, it, it's completely available to any student that was testing positive for COVID in January as well.
0: Okay, let's talk about two two quick things finally. One, a lot of students may have taken up the the rent holiday that was that was reintroduced for January for university accommodation. How's, how how is that rent holiday coming to an end and when might students be able to move back into their accommodation and pay back into their accommodation and not pay? What what's what's the status on that at the moment?
1: Yeah, so for that rent break for accommodation it is until the 31st of January that and um, that that fee has been waived for, um, but students can avail of travelling back earlier. They can move back into their accommodation from the 28th um, if they wish because that's something that we did acknowledge as well, that there's different travel times and that with classes starting back very soon as well that we wanted students to be able to avail of their accommodation that they have. And so I believe the rental fees will be back from the 1st of February.
0: Okay, let's talk a little bit just finally about, I mean, the rest of the term, I I don't want to hold you as a hostage to fortune. But I wonder what your predictions are for for the rest of this year? Can you see the university reimposing some restrictions? Uh, Is it likely that that we're going to move to to a, a position where more and more learning is coming back online, sorry, back in person? I want to also ask about some of those courses where there are significant elements of the course that are still p- taking place online at the discretion of at the discretion of individual schools is that something that you would be concerned about going forward
1: I think that it's important to acknowledge that some elements of online learning is really useful and um, something that I strongly advocate for is lecture recording Um, for instance because I think that students really value that resource but I think that we also acknowledge that the more in-person teaching that can happen should happen i think that for the first semester i think it was somewhere in around 93 or 95 percent um of teaching was conducted in person so i think that that was really positive for students and something that i'd like to see continue um and then in general it's it's really hard to predict the future of the pandemic i think that it's something that the university should take guidance from the public health agency. Um, and I really hope that the decision-making process is a lot more inclusive if it does kind of get to those stakes again. But um, at this point in time, it's 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 hard to see what this semester is like. So I fully acknowledge how stressful that can be for students as well, that just uncertainty around everything as well.
0: Let me just pick up on something you said there. I Emma, mean, did you say that 93 to 95% of teaching had been in person in the last semester?
1: Yeah, um, and I, I think that was across the entire university. So yeah. there is variance within schools, where some schools did take a majority online approach, some took a majority in-person approach, but across the entire board, that was that was what happened
0: in first semester. Wow, OK. Well, listen, Emma, we're going to have to keep track of this going forward. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Emma Murphy there, Education Officer at the SU. Well, thank you so much to Emma for talking to me. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is 16 minutes past seven. Okay, in December, Queen's University released its 2021 annual report, which revealed an operational surplus, that's a profit in layman's terms, of almost 25 million pounds, With me now is uh, Edward Ferrin, the Business and Economics Editor at The Gown. Edward, thanks so much for being here.
3: No problem, thank you for having me on the show.
0: Not a problem at all. Let's start off, what is the annual report? You've been doing a bit of digging into it for us, what does it tell us about the cost to maintain the university throughout this pandemic?
3: Well the report states that COVID-19 of course has been a major impact, has had a major impact on the university, especially with concerns among students as to whether or not their tuition fees have been value for money. It also reports that the university was the first in the United Kingdom, the pause student accommodation rents as the first lockdown hit in 2020, and then of course um, it gave students the following as semester uh, after the summer to withdraw from accommodation that year. So that overall, that would have saved those students in total around about two point five million pounds in fees. Now, of course, that would also mean that that was taken away from the uh, overall budget that Queens had, uh, and so. Other issues such as online teaching, for example, and also Canvas, which was used very rapidly towards the end of uh, 2020 semester for uh, online examinations. That would have put more financial pressures upon the university. And then, of course, uh, the university provided quarantine catering, for example, to students who were in isolation, for example, at Elms in BT1, for example. Uh, This highlighted, again, another increase in the financial strain for the university in order to keep up with accommodation costs and maintenance. And then, of course, staff costs, even though most of the staff would probably not have been on campus at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, staff costs actually rose by about £2 million alongside operating costs. Even if a majority of staff were not uh, were at home working, uh, the number actually went from £230 million in 2020 to £232 million in 2021.
0: So that's actually probably something that most students wouldn't maybe expect. You'd think that uh, if staff weren't going to be on campus that might mean there'd be fewer cleaners needed, fewer security guards needed, the kind of the staff that are required to maintain an in-person presence on campus but actually what we're saying is that both operating costs and staff costs went up for the university in the last year.
3: Yeah so the costs total up represent around an increase of 22 million pounds overall in surplus gathered by Queen's but of course the actual cost in order to maintain uh, the university campus even though there wouldn't have been that many students on campus it would have still been a uh, pretty high, for example, if uh, students needed to go to the library, for example, for study or ahead of any essays or examinations.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, how about uh, broader
3: staff costs,
0: salaries and pensions, how have they changed over the last year?
3: Well, the university uh, subscribes to a scheme called USS Pensions. Now that is a scheme based in Manchester in England for um, academic staff from different universities, people who are still in work and also people who are retired. Um, so it also grants them more uh, pension contributions for example, after they retire. Uh, in 2020, the university paid about 50 million pounds in pension contributions to the scheme, but only 125,000 pounds was spent on it in 2021. And um, it might show again, how Queens is still, even at this minute in time, still find it very difficult to handle the financial pressures around COVID. Um, as it also disposed of a few investments that it undertook in 2021, taking about 213,000 pounds back into the university's Funds.
0: Okay, and uh, let's talk about students then because one of the, I mean one of the real headlines for this and it was reported at the time by the BBC and others was the vital importance that international students and the increasing reliance that the university now has financially on international students to sort of fill some of the university's coffers. What does the annual report tell us about the role of international students at the university?
3: Well it says that the uh, international students have made a, made the university around about £50 million pounds in income from tuition fees for example. Of course, tuition fees have dramatically increased over the last year for international students. Overall, it has accumulated an extra £6 million compared to 2020, which was around about £44 million. Now, of course, this hasn't been a great PR exercise for the university because, of course, there was issues like the uh, two charter planes brought from China uh, at the start of the pandemic, um, which brought around about 770 Chinese students to uh, Belfast. And I of course, that also included Queen. spend a lot of money to charter a flight, which was around about £16,000 an hour for charter from uh, Qatarian, um, Qatar Airways. Um, but overall, uh, tuition fees rose from around about £126 million in 2020 to over £143 million. Now, that is also being partly uh, helped by the fact that Northern Ireland students, for example, have to pay slightly more than what they did in the previous year
0: okay yeah rising with inflation as well I suppose um, and that's interesting again maybe not what students would think I suppose that's you know some students and especially the university might have feared that in the year of the pandemic you would see a hu- you know a collapse in the number of international students that are coming to the university across you know uh, sure it's, it's it's difficult enough to travel anywhere on holidays never mind take a uh, huge period of time to go and study on the other side of the globe but actually what we're saying is that those numbers have really increased um okay well wh- how does that? How does that tie in then with how different students, the ways in which student fees were value for money this year? Because a lot of students you'd hear saying, oh, it hasn't been value for money this year. What does the financial reports tell us on that front?
3: Well, the report has highlighted that the university's received just about £110 million in government grants in 2021. This is up again by about £10 million on the amount given to QUB um, by the government in the previous year. Now, this will probably... um, be because for example of course many of the medical students would have still been on campus during the pandemic of course with increased social distance and stuff like that and so there is still a lot of research going on within the university There still is a lot of uh, important teaching exercises that happen on the campus and of course maintaining the library for example for students who wish to maybe go and buy and go and get a new book or for example loan out one to try and uh, get knowledge for an essay coming up or an exam that is still uh, pretty big and it still has a huge strain on the f- on the purse for Queen's as a whole.
0: Okay, um, I want to ask as well, something that the scoop has covered before is the Vice-Chancellor's salary. Uh, I attracted a not insignificant amount of criticism in the past. Uh, there's a rather large paragraph dedicated to this in the financial report. Uh, what does it say?
3: Well, it says that the, this year, this financial year, um, Ian Greer, of course, the Vice-Chancellor, did not earn... More or less than what he did the previous year. And now this is actually quite interesting because, of course, inflation would probably have played a part in most of the salaries, and that would have meant there would have been probably a slight increase in the amount of money that would have been paid to the Vice Chancellor but it seems that the, as part of the sort of rolling back and maybe trying to find some way of saving more money and try to increase the surplus that they got this year, they decided not to increase the salary from £306,000.
0: Yeah, but I mean, it's not a insignificant salary at the moment, but what, what that kind of tells us, doesn't it, Edward, that you know a decision has been taken there to maintain that salary at the same level and not to see an increase, perhaps because the university might be aware of the fact that it's not a great look if if the highest paid Officer within the university is getting their already not insignificant salary increased during a pandemic, right?
3: Yep. And of course, also, they also have the other issue of 38 other members of the university staff also earning over £100,000, which is that right? doesn't look good. Yep.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, well, okay, Edward Farron, thank you so much for being with us, business and economics editor at The Gown, taking us through the financial reports released by Queen's University in 2021, December of 2021. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is 23 minutes past seven. <coughs> Okay, now six universities across the UK have signed a pledge to stop using non-disclosure agreements with their staff and their students. Cambridge, Exeter, Buckinghamshire New University, Goldsmiths Keele and University College London have all signed up to the pledge, which is backed by the government. This comes after a BBC News investigation in 2020, which found that nearly a third of UK universities had used NDAs to silence student complaints about sexual misconduct, bullying and harassment. With me just before the show is adam stanley student journalist from pi media at ucl take a listen adam thank you so much for being with us give us a bit of a background to this story what's what's it all about
4: yeah so um i think it was 150 universities have been asked by the government now uh, to sign a pledge uh committing to ending the use of non-disclosure agreements um with staff and students alike, you know, relating to topics such as sexual misconduct, uh, harassment and bullying, and six universities so far have, have signed it, including my university, UCL.
0: Okay, let's yeah. talk about where this story has kind of come from. A BBC investigation a few years ago has really started off uh, where, we, where we are today, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so the BBC found that um, nearly a third of the NDAs used to silence students um uh complaints and such like you know on sexual misconduct harassment and bullying um they also found that uh the headline obviously is that 87 million since uh, 2017 has been used to as payoffs for um for staff to sign these agreements
0: yeah absolutely and mm-hmm. what way the non disclosure agreements actually
4: work for people who, who maybe haven't heard of them before as a notion? Right, so uh, it's not necessarily sort of forced onto anyone, but people uh, are offered to sign this thing uh, usually or often in exchange for some sort of compensation, some sort of um, protection maybe, or monetary compensation. Uh, it sort of depends on the case, but once you sign signed that, uh, agreement, uh, you're not allowed to talk about it like publicly at all. So not to colleagues, not on social media, not to the press, anything like that, you have to keep it to yourself.
0: And I suppose part of why this practice has been introduced is because there are some instances in which universities want to use non-disclosure agreements for stuff like the way in which their uh, schools and universities work and they don't want that. Those, you know, the methods of work stolen and used by other universities, but is it what yep. we're starting to see here the case that there seems to be some evidence for the fact that non-disclosure agreements are being abused and using, used for things other than that? Is that where we're
4: at? Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, traditionally it was sort of the idea of a non-disclosure agreement was to protect business secrets, as you said, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the inner workings of the university, and what makes institutions um you know the powerful and successful institutions that they are um yeah but now it sort of seems that uh yeah they've been misused a little bit in order to keep people quiet and to keep the press off certain universities um backs and to keep their sort of reputation intact
0: okay can you give us a, a real world example i mean what what kind of situations are students who are being asked to sign or who have signed non-disclosure agreements what kind of situations are they finding themselves in
4: yeah so uh one student who was interviewed by the bbc um said told that she'd been she would be expelled if she posts if she posted publicly or talked publicly about a violent sexual attack um that she had to sign an nda about Another a, a university student of, uh, I think it was of West London, uni of West London, um, she was actually thanked by the people who who got her to sign the NDA for, quote unquote, not ruining her alleged um, attacker's life, which, you know, mm-hmm. she, she said anonymously um, that this, you know, was obviously pretty backwards. Is the other way around that this sort of thing happens? Is that the the, uh, the abuser is the one who you know who generally ruins the abused life? It is, you know it's sort of switching the the victims. Yeah, infer- in that inverted sense.
0: that dynamic. And what kind of what kind of money are we talking about here, Adam? You know, mm. uh, when it comes to financial compensation, is it a couple of hundred quid? Is it thousands? Is it tens of thousands? What what what's the kind of yeah? Rent? Well, it,
4: it it varies a lot. It varies a lot. So. Um, it's more more often than not, it's the staff who are compensated. Uh so 87 million have gone to staff since 2017, 1.3 million has has gone to students so, since 2016. Um, but the individual sort of payouts range from a few hundred pounds, four hundred pounds to, you know, forty thousand. Mm-hmm. Um and actually Emma Chapman, someone who um who signed an NDA, or not Not an NDA actually, um, something similar with UCL, um, she was compensated 70,000. So it really depends on the case and the threat that it poses to, um, the threat that the story poses to the institution, really, I
0: think. And, and, and why was it such a large amount then for for Dr. Emma Chapman, who was a doctoral student, am I right, at UCL?
4: She was, was so this was in 2010. Um, she was a doctorate student at the time She was being, uh, sort of sexually harassed in the workplace by a a male colleague who's not been named. Um, and he apparently, he was asking for hugs, sort of constantly sort of intrusive conversations about her sex life uh, and her personal life. And apparently it, um, left her sort of unable uh, to be able to continue her work. Um, and. She then left for uh, maternity leave and came back to work with postnatal depression um and she confided in, in the same colleague um, of her mental health struggles and he sort of held it against her and made things worse for her uh, in you know in the workplace even even worse than they already were and so she left uCL in the end she went to Imperial College once she got her doctorate um and three years later she decided to take action um and she signed she, she left ucl and, and filed a complaint in 2015 five years after this sort of thing started happening um and she signed a was confidentiality waiver was paid seventy thousand, um and uh, th- yeah that's sort of that's how it went that's how it went and and she was she she came out and said that she was um fearing for the safety of her children once they had, you know, once they had been born and um, the safety of her family, it seemed very sort of violent. Um, mm-hmm. and I suppose because that was such a severe case, that's why the amount was so high.
0: And I suppose for I mean, I know I know on this show, for example, this evening and over the last couple of weeks and months in Ireland, on the island of Ireland uh the, the the murder of Ashton Murphy has has tied into some mm-hmm. of these issues of, of, of power dynamics and I think back as well to much longer conversations about the likes of non-disclosure agreements in Philip Green's organization in the city of London uh, and across the capital I wonder what your own thoughts are on uh, you know what place do non-disclosure agreements have do they have any place in the way in which they've been mm-hmm. abused
4: yeah yeah the way they've been used absolutely not no place at all it's um it's quite frankly it's ridiculous that sort of institutions um use these at all if if they're trying to protect their um their reputation what they should do is as soon as they find out any sort of sexual misconduct violence bullying in the workplace they should prosecute the person who's been perpetrating mm. it you know and they should they should stamp it out of the university or, or the workplace they shouldn't silence the victims because that's only going to create well it obviously is it's the wrong thing to do ethically but it's only going to create more frustration and it's only going to allow this sort of um this workplace atmosphere to continue
0: okay adam thank you so much for being with me we'll have to follow this pledge and see how many more universities across the uk Mm -hmm. agree to sign up thank you so much Okay, Adam Stanley there, student journalist from Pi Media at UCL. This is The Scoop on Sunday, the time it's 33 minutes past seven. Now, draft proposals for cuts put to the Northern Ireland Economy Committee has attracted a huge amount of public discourse this week. This comes as the Department of Economy tries to find ways to make up for a reduction in its budget of over £250 million. With me now is Odron Johnson, a reporter here at The Scoop. Odran, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. Okay, what's the backdrop to this story? Where's it all come
5: from? Well, obviously you mentioned they're looking to bring in about £250 million over the course of the period from 2022 up to 2025. And the the two main focal points that have been coming out of most of the articles have been the cutting of university places and the increase in fees uh, of students in Northern Ireland attending local universities by 60%. But that is, of course, just two of them, a, a large variety of proposals. It's important to note as well that when being briefed, uh, by the presentation to Stormont's economy committee. They were described as model proposals, so nothing is yet concrete, so there's still a lot of leeway in what could happen and whatnot. Main reasoning behind this, uh, Stormont's draft budget has kind of proposed a 10% increase in health funding, with a drop to other departments. In the presentation, it was known that the department could be looking at a 2% annual cut, uh, and it's just over £800 million annual budget already, along with the loss of obviously the £65 million a year from the EU funds. Okay, so that's where it all comes from. What are the actual proposals and what kind of an impact would they have? Well, obviously, already mentioned needs to get 250 million by 2022, 2025. So there's going to be a couple of things they're going to be looking at, hopefully uh, either a combined measure or a couple of different bits and pieces. Uh, A few that they've rattled off from the proposals have been a 30 million pounds saved by cutting student places, uh, a raise in Northern Irish students who go to local universities fees by 59%, so that would be raising it from 4,530 pounds a year up to 7,200 pounds a year, and that would save around 63 million. They're looking at ending uh, EMA, which is of course the Educational Maintenance Service. uh, maintenance allowance sorry which is a low income uh, for low income backgrounds you know to receive 30 pound a week to help with their transport costs books equipment and whatnot and that would save 15 million pound a year and then there was also a model proposal to cut all other student grants which would have saved 51 million pounds a year and there was also loosely based an idea of reducing the apprenticeship funding by half
0: not a great outlook i suppose for, for the for a great many number of people who might fall into some of those categories but money needs to be found somewhere give us some of the warnings that come along with this presentation what are the risks
5: Yeah, well you're dead right is that it's a big problem for a lot of people and obviously the main thing that's become it's easy to see a lot of this negative information coming out assuming that all of this is going to happen but it is again important to note that the presentation noted that they are only proposals and there is a lot of leeway in what could happen. One important thing to note though in the presentation is that they mentioned uh, many businesses and livelihoods of families across Northern Ireland will be uh, materially worse off if there isn't significant funding given to the DfE. And the presentation then also noted that there is already a significant drop in the actual funding to Northern Ireland institutions. As we saw from 2010 to 2011, there was a significant reduction in public spending by 14%.
0: Okay, so uh, an area of the economy already in a little bit of trouble. Well, earlier this week, I chatted to Ellen Fearon. Take a listen to this.
5: Okay, well, I'm joined now by
0: Ellen Fearon, president of NUSUSI. That's the union that represents all students in Northern Ireland. And Ellen, I suppose this is a story that's particularly relevant to your position, because you're also there to represent students in in further educational colleges and those in apprenticeships, too. We've just heard some of some of the details there. I wonder what's your initial reaction to this story?
2: I suppose, to be honest, um, my initial reaction was shock. This really, we really didn't see this coming. It, it really took a lot of people right back. Um, I think after that sort of immediate sort of shock, um, we just came to outrage. Like I think these proposals are the worst proposed cuts to education we've seen in over a decade. Um, the the effects on this would be astronomical, not only to individual students, to students' parents, to young people currently coming up through primary and secondary school. But also um, to the economy itself, the idea of cutting 50% of apprenticeships would massively impact on businesses, particularly smaller businesses, um, and really just have incredibly negative consequences. Um, I think part of the thing that we're looking at is our government talks a lot about brain drain and why young people leave Northern Ireland. If the government talks about cutting university places, cutting EMA, cutting financial support, it's inevitable that people en masse will leave here. I don't know. The message that we're getting from government here is that young people aren't wanted here. There's no place for us
0: here. It's an an eternal problem, I suppose, Ellen. But part of the reason for this is that this draft proposal, draft budget from the Department of Finance, wants 10% more for the Department of Health. Off the back of COVID, really long waiting lists, a crisis in mental health provision, all of these things that students need uh, uh, as well. Um, And difficult decisions have to be made. If you want more money for health, you need to find it somewhere, do you not, Ellen?
2: Yes, definitely. I think um, we completely understand the financial sort of crisis that the government is in at the minute. Um, I also think a lot of this is to do with Brexit. The government has lost a substantial amount of money because of Brexit. Um, this, These proposals have come from a department led by a DUP minister who will acknowledge the fact that Brexit has played a massive part here. Um, in terms of money coming from different places, we actually had a meeting with the economy minister on Monday to talk about just that. Um, and I think there definitely is a risk here that These proposed cuts are a tactic being used to get more money from the Department of Finance. Um, And of course, that's not okay. It's not okay to play with young people and students' lives like that. But I think potentially that is what's being done here. Um, I suppose I would say to that, it's up to the executive to find solutions. And those solutions can't be uh, at the cost of young people, students, and their future. It just can't be, not with the sort of disastrous cuts that are being proposed here. Um, And we would say that, like, the cuts aren't always the answer. Like, we can have more imaginative solutions here. We've come up with a manifesto for the past year on the education system that we want to see that will work for people. And instead of implementing some of those ideas, we're seeing cuts, always cuts, and it's always young people and students that are sort of...
0: the. If it's not cuts, that's going to raise the money, I suppose, Ellen. Part of the thing that grown-up politicians and, and those engaged in politics have to do is come up with an imaginative solutions. You've talked about solutions there. Where would you find the money to pay for a 10% increase in Department of Health as well as maintaining the same amount of provision in the Department of Economy for all the things that we're talking about here? Where does the money come from?
2: I suppose, to be honest, I'm not an economist. I'll, I'll never I'll never sort of get into details on that. Um, I think it is, it's is—it's the job of Stormont to find that, but... I think the cuts to young people and, and students immediately is so disappointing. I think there's a number of avenues the government could, could go down. Um, one of which obviously is more money from Westminster. We've lost a lot of money from the EU. Um, Westminster and, and sort of that government were sort of the ones to, to drag us out of that. Um, so I think more money from skills from Westminster needs to happen. Um, I think, again, like I, like we're obviously a big believer in reimagining our education system. So the student fees situation isn't working at the minute there's a huge debt bubble there that's actually not helping the government when it comes to finance it's not helping universities or students or staff so the the lack of like reimagining that system and like abolishing those fees to come up with a better system instead of raising them so both raising university fees and cutting pieces isn't an economic solution that doesn't make any economic sense whatsoever so okay. these proposals come wouldn't actually help the economy particularly when it comes to apprentices that is Going to have detrimental impacts mm-hmm. on,
0: on well, um, well, let's talk about fees specifically. So, the proposed increase is from, uh, it stands around 4,000 at the moment up to 7,200, which is still around £2,000 less than students in GB pay. What's so wrong with students in Northern Ireland paying still less than what students around the rest of the UK pay?
2: I think um, for us, it, it, it really comes down to the fact that, like, students and young people still aren't being invested in and our futures aren't being invested in. In in return, students are expected to pay more for a service they're getting less out of because universities are continually seeing their teaching grants cut. Um, Not only that, but like these proposals would would mean that we have 6,000 less university places from this September. So whilst those fee increases might be a few years down the line, the cuts being suggested to places would be from this year. So currently right now, students are (laughs) filling out their UCAS applications for those places to potentially be cut that is a straight message to students that, that you're not wanted here. So again, the, the, the sort of proposals coming forward don't make sense because yeah. while, while you can raise fees, if you're cutting people's access to study here, to stay in Northern Ireland and put money into our economy,
0: Okay, well, let's park that issue to do with places because I want to come back to that because it does feed into this wider issue to do with the brain drain. And that's something that uh, deserves a lot more discussion on on the increase in fees specifically. I mean, over a third of students from Northern Ireland voluntarily decide to go to GB and pay higher fees. They decide to do that. So clearly it's not a massive disincentive for students to be paying higher fees. So are you saying that would you be more happy with an increase in fees than you would be with a reduction in the number of places?
2: We, we wouldn't want to see either of those options. I think, again, I know that I know that proposals have to be made, but cuts to young people and students' futures, young people and students are the future of this economy. So again, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, in terms of an increase in fees specifically, um, I obviously, we're the National Union of Students, I don't agree with tuition fees. I, I think that that economic model is an experiment that has not worked out. Um, and it, it actually isn't contributing to the economy because it's just creating a debt bubble that is going to burst. Um, but on the increase in fees, again, as you say, like a third of students already decide to leave here, or a third of young people. If fees are risen to the extent that they are in the UK or just below that, that's just going to increase and people are going to leave.
0: Okay, so oh, hold on. So if, if a third of students voluntarily at the moment decide to pay 9,000 elsewhere, then surely, I mean, why would it make any difference? If students at the moment are deciding they want to pay less by no, staying in Northern Ireland, why wouldn't they continue to do that if they're still having to pay £2,000 less to stay in Northern
5: Ireland?
2: Apologies. Yeah, no, I, di- I didn't get into, I didn't explain that properly. So I suppose like part of the when we look at the reasons, there's a, a bunch of reasons that why the brain drain happens. Um, tuition fees come into that slightly, but there's numerous reasons, obviously, why students decide to mostly go to England or Scotland, sometimes down south as well. And that's to do with cultural reasons. That's to do with sort of the opportunities available to here, either via university courses or job prospects, whatever it might be. There's loads of reasons why people decide to go to England. Those reasons will stay there. But like part of the reason why a lot of students stay here is because of lower fees. So if those fees rise even more, it creates less incentive, again, for students to stay here. So again, there's a bunch of factors that are why students leave in the first place. But those factors will remain, and there'll just be a bigger incentive.
0: Okay. What is so wrong with students? Um, Students in Northern Ireland don't have to start repaying their loan until they earn £19,000. You talked about how you disagree with a wider system uh, of student finance in Northern Ireland, and it's not dissimilar across the rest of the UK. Um, What's so wrong with students paying what is not actually really a debt but more more of a student contribution system on on potential future earnings according to the ifs only what is it 17 percent of students will ever pay back their full amount of loan is that really a disincentive to students to go to university is it not the case that you're framing of it as a ma- major debt that hangs over students is that not the bigger disincentive
2: no I, I would disagree with that um i think so i think when we talk about tuition fees from our sense it is obviously about sort of the I think there's a few different elements to it. Um, From our perspective and from the perspective of many students, um, it's like the sort of ideological reason behind it is that like education should be free at the point of access. When we talk about like the likes of climate change coming up, when we talk about all the economic problems we're facing, there are many students priced out of education because of the current system. And I'm not even talking about the sort of
0: average. How are they priced out of the current system? How are they priced out of the current system?
2: So, so um, I'm not even. I'm not just talking about the, the average sort of like eighteen to twenty year old year olds, like that finish school and go to university. What I'm talking about as well is people who will are going to need to retrain and gain new skills and perhaps go back to education later in life and enter in more debt on top of like the life debt that they already have. Is 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 not is not an option for them at the minute. So I think there's sort of that process. But also when we look at the the economic argument for tuition fees, tuition fees were introduced to create a marketplace where students, where where there'd be a competition where where students could like look at different prices of, of different universities, look at different courses and weigh up their options. But that is not what happened immediately. Every single university raised this fee to the maximum, maximum amount. So that marketplace idea that was, they were created hasn't actually happened. So at the minute students are paying, then yes, maybe through the form of debt, but I don't believe that people should be putting thousands pounds of debt. And like, as your point, as you've said, if students aren't actually paying that debt, then that's creating an economic debt bubble that doesn't actually function and doesn't put more money into the economy in the first place. So it doesn't make... But
0: it's underwritten by the government. My point is, uh, do you not agree that there is no financial... Uh, reason why students shouldn't go to university because if they don't earn enough to pay back their loan that debt will never hang over them it doesn't stay on their credit report and they will only ever have to pay it back what is it nine percent of their income above nineteen thousand pounds so do you not agree with the fact that that is not a disincentive or not a rational disincentive for students to go to university
2: I know I, I don't agree with you. We have re- I don't have a hand, but we do have research that says that particularly working class students will look at university, look at the prices and be like, that's not an option for me, particularly because of like the other like hidden costs of education, accommodation, all of that sort of stuff that students have to pay for, um, including fees. So I, I completely get where you're coming from, but um, I don't think that's the reality of it whatsoever. And my okay. biggest argument is that it's not actually raising revenue. The government isn't benefiting from this tuition fee system in the first place. Um, well, it's something we met yeah. with all of the major political parties about it in the last few months and the 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 argument is there like everyone agrees but the first sort of option everyone jumps to in these situations
0: is cuts, cuts, cuts. Okay. Um, How many young people? I mean, I want to talk about apprenticeships in particular. And I know you don't, uh, you might not have the stats immediately to hand, but what kind of an effect does the cut in apprenticeships have? Because I know over recent years there's been an increase in the number of students who are considering, not students, sorry, young people who are considering moving into apprenticeships rather than down the university line. Uh, What kind of an effect do you think a cut in apprenticeships would have in particular? Because it's dead easy when you're, you know, like me, uh, in that university bubble to just think about, oh, how bad it is for tuition fees and, and people at university. But actually, it's a much wider effect, isn't it?
2: It definitely is. And I'm, I'm glad to hear your reason, to be honest, because it's something that it, any like sort of media headlines that we've had about this have just been about tuition fees. But for me, the the likes of like cutting EMA, cutting apprenticeships by 50%, hits a lot harder and makes very little economic sense as well. And um, cutting an apprenticeships by 50% will have a massive impact on young people, particularly in working class areas, particularly in further education, who want to go down that route. When we look again at we our government talks so much about the future of skills, building a skills economy, building an economy that's ready for climate change, apprenticeships are the ones that build those systems. They're the sort of like lifeblood of the economy, if you will, like they are the ones who are being employed in small businesses, being employed in larger businesses as well. And um, so stopping it it's it it's something that we are so taken aback by because it doesn't make any sense. We've actually um, looked at sort of government strategies globally, particularly across Europe, and no one, even in the rest of the UK, Scotland, Wales, even England, no one is talking about cutting apprenticeships. People are talking about increasing apprenticeships because of the way that they contribute to the economy and are economically effective. Um, we have spoken to apprenticeships across the, Northern Ireland in the last few days and immediately they're like, right, and am I going to go to down south am I going to go to England because I'm not staying here that's the impact that this is going to have a sort of final trend.
0: question Ellen I suppose you said you've been engaging with the minister over the last couple of days I'm worth saying also and reiterating that these are proposed cuts and they haven't been decided upon etc cetera, etc a cetera, pinch of salt but in your conversations with the minister one what's your big message to the minister been? and two what sort of a reaction have you got from the minister to these proposed cuts
2: Um, I'm going to answer that in the reverse order. (laughs) So the reaction that we had from the minister, um, the minister is very adamant that he does not support these proposals, um, that he does not want to see these proposals happen, but that the Department of Finance have put him in this position and put his department in this position. Um, Again, I do think that there's a chance that this is a tactic being used by the department. Um, these proposed cuts to get more money from the Department of Finance. I suppose our message to the Economy Minister is that that's unacceptable. I don't think any single person in the Assembly, in the Executive, Civil Servant, whoever it might be, should have looked at these proposals and thought, this is okay. this is going to have a positive impact on the economy, on our young people, on our students. Um, We see this very much as an attack on young people, an attack on our generation coming up through the ranks now. um, And we need to see these proposals refused.
0: Okay. Um, a final question. You said... uh what, what is unacceptable about the Minister for the Economy objecting to, to these cuts from the Department of Finance? What do you mean by that?
2: So, I, I suppose what I mean by that is that um, these proposals have been sort of brought to the public domain. We've had students, young people, parents onto us, terrified how this is going to impact them. I, I think these proposals are somewhat of a fear tactic that is being used. But also, by, by I who it, do
0: you think? By who do you think is using them as a fair tactic?
2: The economy minister. Okay. Um, but but I don't I don't think that I I think that the list of proposals, when you see how extreme they are, when you see when you look at them rationally, they don't actually make they, these wouldn't like make the cuts that we need to see. It doesn't make economic sense that they should have been brought forward in the first place. I think if this was a, a reasonable thing that they thought was the only solution, they wouldn't have brought these forward. So that's what I mean when I.
0: Okay, so just to clarify, sort of what your your suspicion is that these are proposals that have been voiced by the uh, minister for the economy and then objected to by the minister of the economy for the purposes of leveraging leveraging the Department of Finance to get more money. That's that's what your suspicion is.
2: If that that's my suspicion. I I, I fear this is be a tactic, and um, young people and students are being put on the chopping board, effectively.
0: Okay, Ellen, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it very much. Okay, well, that was Ellen Fearon, president of NUSUSI, talking to me earlier this week. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is eight minutes to eight. Well, with me now is Kirsty King, deputy editor of Culture here at The Scoop and soon to be the host of one of our latest shows, our newest show. Before we get to that, though, uh, Kirsty, there's an editorial up at the moment put up this evening by The Scoop. Tell us a little bit about what's in there.
6: Yes, so this article um it's just following the um, tragic uh, death of Ashley Murphy in County Alfully, um last week, and I think this is a story that everyone is still trying to process, and I think our hearts go out to her family and friends at this time. Um, but following Ashley's murder, uh, wo- women everywhere have been sharing their fear and their anger about what's happened and uh, they're rightfully asking what is actually being done to stop this from happening around campus and in wider society. And of course the Students' Union are doing great work in this area, um, which they speak about in the article. Um, But we really wanted um, with the article to stress um, the important everyday role of men uh, in this issue. Um, So the importance of men becoming active allies Uh, For example, listening to women's concerns, um, calling out others for misogynistic comments, um, and also not engaging in victim-blaming. And I think some people might argue that things like, say, casually misogynistic comments or jokes aren't the same as being physically violent towards a woman, but we would argue that if casual misogyny is a continual occurrence in everyday society, this in itself feeds into a culture which enables certain people to deem gender-based violence as acceptable. So I think with this article what we're trying to say is it's making that connection that is vitally important.
0: Yeah and what type of voices have you got in that article and, and what kind of the messages do you think you're getting across from those who've contributed to that?
6: Yes yeah, so we've had a really great range of students get on board and um, so we've had Yi uh, Ye Kang Chu, who was um QUB Student of the Year at the SU Awards last year, um and he has actually um he said himself in the article that he knows women, um female friends and peers, who were the victim of um sexual harassment and um violence uh, while he was at Queens, uh, and he has said um that it's very important to be an active bystander, um so that means um listening to female friends um and sort of calling out your friends or peers if you know that they have uh, maybe said a, a comment which perhaps they thought was a joke but um has been uh women have found it misogynistic so um yeah it's very important um i think all of them really pointed out the importance of just listening to your your female friend's concerns and if they think something is misogynistic then it is and you need to listen to them
0: okay well people can read that editorial by visiting uh the scoop part of the queen's radio website that's up there at the moment as of the last few hours and we'd really encourage you to go on there and take a look it links quite nicely uh, Kirsty, to the new show that you're going to be hosting coming the first week of february tell us a little bit about it
6: Yeah, so I'm really excited um, to be starting a new show um, and it's called The Women's Scoop and it's really just a platform um, to give women a voice um, on all, um, a range of different issues Um, and I think I really wanted to make this show because I think during my time at Queen's, um, I've really just become aware in recent times that there are so many women, um, both here at Queen's and in Northern Ireland in general, who are doing really great things and really making a positive impact in a whole range of different areas of society, um. Yeah, so this show, um, I really want to give women that voice um to discuss issues that matter to them.
0: And what type of format do you think uh, the the show will be taking? And how can people get in touch if they want to contribute, join in, or just or just send you their comments?
6: Yes. Yeah, so the way the show is going to work is each episode, I will be talking to a guest. Um, they could from the Queen's SU so for example the first episode I'm going to be talking to the SU Women's Officer Holly Tonstell about her role and the work she's been doing this year and then a few other examples of people I'll be talking to in later episodes will be uh, the QB's Feminist and Equality Society and then also Initiatives Arts Fed Queens as well so the likes of uh, Stop Street Harassment NI. Um, which is run by two Queen's graduates, um, then as well as that, uh, Sex Education Reform NI, uh, which is a campaign to reform sex ed- education in schools here. And then as well as that, um, 5050 NI, which is a campaign to get more women into politics. So it's really a whole range of different guests from different sort of areas of um, society, and hopefully there'll be a lot more as well
0: okay fantastic and how can people get in touch Kirsty, if they want to find out a bit more or maybe even contribute themselves
6: yes yeah, so if anyone is interested in getting involved um just email the scoop at queensradio.org and i'll get back to you
0: there fantastic and you can get in touch via all our social media as well Kirsty king it's two minutes to eight so we're going to need to leave it there deputy editor of culture here at the scoop and soon to be host of our latest scoop show the woman's scoop coming to wherever you get your podcasts, first week of February. This is The Scoop on Sunday. The time is two minutes to eight. Well, that is us for this week. Thank you so much to my guests for giving me their time tonight. To Thank you to the team here at The Scoop, Emma, Hebe and Odrin in particular. Remember, you can follow The Scoop on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. Follow our five weekday podcasts. Check out our online newspaper and I'll see you back here very soon for The Scoop on Sunday. Thank you so much for your company. night